Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto but can be streamed from anywhere, and it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzili November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. friends and welcome to the dense edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm amy brandt we are editors at dense media and in today's episode we will discuss how broadway's prospects are currently looking uh not its prospects for reopening because it seems like that's fully a go but for staying open we will get into how the pandemic has prodded dance schools to reconsider their often draconian attendance policies And we will talk about the new moms of ballet's recent baby boom and the uniquely complicated set of circumstances they're trying to navigate. Before kicking off the episode, though, we wanted to say thank you, first of all, to all of you who sent in ideas for our upcoming mailbag episodes. We get a ton of great suggestions via Instagram and Twitter and email. Um, Stay tuned for our first mailbag pod that's coming up in a couple of weeks because you just might hear us discuss one of your suggested topics. And if you haven't gotten us your suggestions yet, there's definitely still time. Send us a DM at the.dance.edit on Instagram or at dance underscore edit on Twitter. We also know that you are all eagerly waiting for updates on our new premium audio interview series, The Dance Edit Extra. I promise it's coming very soon. Please keep your eyes and your ears peeled. You can sign up for updates about the launch at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which we're starting on some low notes today. Yes. An arbitrator has upheld New York City Ballet's decision not to pay its musicians for the 2020-21 season due to the lack of live performances. Naturally, the Musicians' Union is not happy about it. The New York City Ballet Orchestra members have not been paid since June of last year. So here's some background. On March 24th, 2020, the company agreed to guarantee the musicians 24 weeks of work over the 2021 season. Company management's argument here is that 24 weeks of, quote, guaranteed employment does not exactly mean 24 weeks of, quote, guaranteed compensation. Uh, So without any shows during this time, New York City Ballet is not required to pay them, according to their argument, and the arbitrator has agreed with them. So um, kind of sounds like one big word salad to me and incredibly unfair. Yeah, that's a big mess. We'll include a link in the show notes where you can read the full statement from Local 802, which is the Musicians Union. So on Monday, we found out that the reimagined revival of West Side Story will not reopen when Broadway returns this fall. Uh, That news followed April's announcement that lead producer Scott Rudin would be stepping back from active participation in all his Broadway productions after he faced multiple allegations of harassment and bullying. And then last year, of course, pre-pandemic, this revival had also come under fire for casting and then standing by Amar Ramasar, even though he had been suspended from New York City Ballet after sharing nude photos of female dancers. It's a story that's probably familiar to many of you. Um, Anyway, it's sort of a like not with a bang, but a whimper ending for this West Side revival, which I know it got mixed reviews, but it also featured some really extraordinary performances. 
by the artists and the cast. Like, oh, what I would give to see Jesenia Ayala's Anita again. I know. I never had a chance to see West Side on Broadway. So, mm-hmm. but you know, it is a shame that this announcement is coming so late and so close to, you know, Broadway's reopening. This year's Princess Grace Award winners for dance and choreography were announced last week. They are Kalia Campbell of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, Ashton Edwards of the Pacific Northwest Ballet School, actually joining Pacific Northwest Ballet as an apprentice this season, Tushrik Fredericks, who dances with Chamel Pitt's company Tribe, Ashley Kaylin Green of Wim Wim, choreographer Johnny Mercer, and choreographer Martha Nichols. There are also four artists who received honoraria grants. They are Alicia Johnson, Kennedy Targos, Alice Ghosty, and Crystal Michelle Perkins. That is such a great list. I'm, I'm personally, well, Ashton Edwards, we love us and Ashton course, Edwards, but yeah. I'm also personally excited to see Martha Nichols on there. She is a genius, and I feel like it's taken way too long for a lot of the dance world to realize that. Um, if you haven't heard our interview with her, you got to go back and listen. It's in episode 51 from February. So it looks like the long whispered about revival of Funny Girl will finally be happening next spring. An equity casting call for the show says that the production is aiming to start performances in April of 2022. The show is going to feature choreography by Eleanor Scott and tap choreography by Ayadeli Cassell. And actually, that's a line that sort of makes my heart flutter. Choreography by Eleanor Scott and tap choreography by Ayadeli Cassell. I know. I'm so excited for that. And I love the recognition that, hey, yes, you're going to need a specialist to do justice to tap dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Ballet Hispanico has launched two new initiatives, a tuition-free program to cultivate a new generation of dancers, and the Latinx Dance Institute to foster a new generation of dance leaders. So here's a bit of info on each one. The Latinx Dance Institute will center around three initiatives, the Instituto Choreografico, which invites audience members, leaders, and presenters into dialogue with emerging choreographers through showings and panel discussions. The Latinx Leaders Summit, which is a two-day event of forums, networking, and workshops for Latinx dance leaders. And Dialogos, free public panel discussions exploring the intersectionalities of arts, social justice, and Latinx culture. And then their second initiative, the Palante Scholars, is a professional studies program that will serve to bridge that gap between student and professional and will offer 20 dancers tuition-free scholarships to work with the company and also train on their own. Such a big deal, both initiatives. I mean, big shout out to Eduardo Valaro, their artistic director, who's just been getting it like absolutely right for a long time, but, but especially recently. Oh my gosh. I feel like Valley Hispanico has really been on fire this whole yeah. year through the whole pandemic. I mean, yeah. I don't go a week without getting some sort of update on something that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Here is a story that we actually missed in our roundup last week. Lincoln Center has named Shanta Thake as its new chief artistic officer. Um, Thake is a theater executive. Most recently, she was associate artistic director at the Public Theater, where she managed Joe's Pub for a while. Um, she said she's hoping to maintain the organization's classical offerings while also bringing in more diverse programming and artists. So excited to see what she has planned. Yeah. Poe star and choreographer Jason Rodriguez and his longtime manager, Ricardo Sebastian, have just launched a new talent agency for BIPOC queer and trans creatives to ensure, quote, equal access to opportunities for all. 
The New York City-based company named Aragency is now accepting submissions for consideration. That's so stinking cool. I know. I mean, also, just by the way, if you have not yet read the Cuts profile of Jason, where they followed him around during a night out dancing at clubs, (laughs) you need to go read it immediately. It is epic. Fantastic. So here's some big news from the dance reality TV world. John Waite, who won the Great British Bake Off back in 2012, will partner with a male professional dancer on BBC's Strictly Come Dancing this next season. It's the dance show's first pairing of two men. Um, although it's actually not the show's first same-sex pairing. That was boxer Nicola Adams and pro Katya Jones last fall. Fingers crossed, though, that Waite and his partner have a longer run than Adams and Jones did because they had to bow out after Jones got covid which that was oh. like the most 2020 headline that ever right. was. The first same-sex strictly couple ended its run after a dancer tested positive for COVID. So Yeah. Have they done this with Dancing with the Stars yet? No, it's so overdue. It's yeah. so overdue. I feel like it's only a matter of time. Yeah. I hope. Bruce Bowie, Ballet Memphis's beloved costume designer, has died at the age of 44. Gretchen Wallert McLennan, Ballet Memphis's CEO and president, told the Commercial Appeal that Bowie had designed at least 50 ballets over 20 years. He was also a huge fixture in Memphis's drag scene, and uh, apparently he died of a heart attack. So very sad. Big loss for Ballet Memphis. He was so young. It's just incredibly sad. So for our first longer segment today, we want to get into a recent piece that ran in Bloomberg with a very ominous headline. The headline was, Broadway is coming back in September, but can it stay open? Uh, and that makes it sound like a Delta variant story, which which it is in large part. I mean, clearly the Delta surge has made Broadway's reopening process much more complicated and much more fraught, as it has made pretty much everything much more complicated and much more fraught. But This is also a story about which Broadway shows will ultimately be the most vulnerable if ticket sales are lower than anticipated. And they're not necessarily the shows you'd think. No, they're they're actually the big blockbuster shows. The long-running Phantom of the Opera, Chicago, Lion King, basically because they have been here so long that the majority of their audiences are tourists. Mm -hmm. And... With tourism being down a lot, you know, that presents this conundrum. Yeah, if everybody local has seen them already, the newer shows are going to have an upper hand. They have that novelty appeal that's going to bring in people from nearby. Right, right. Charlotte St. Martins, who is the president of the Broadway League, said that 65% of Broadway's audience is made up of tourists. So that's a big chunk. That's a huge chunk. Yeah, so so Charlotte St. Martin gave some a bunch of useful figures in this in this story. One of them was that if you want to keep your show open, it's really simple. You have to sell 75% or more of your seats every single show. And mm-hmm. if you go for more than a couple of weeks without hitting that target, most shows have to close. She pointed out that some shows have been able to set aside some of the money they got through the government's shuttered venue operators grants and that there are some tax credit programs that might help shows stay open, but Without ticket sales, eventually you're just toast. I, I also thought it was interesting that this piece pointed out that usually, usually musicals are easier sells because they have like big widespread appeal. Even if there's a language mm-hmm. barrier, you can still get something out of them. But they're just larger, slower moving machines than plays are. They require more time to develop and more resources to put on. 
So they can't be as nimble in terms of like adjusting to or reflecting a particular moment the way that plays can. Like if you're hoping to bring in more diverse audiences, which is going to be key to filling houses as we come back, look at the slate of plays opening on Broadway this fall. There are seven new plays by Black playwrights, which is fantastic and probably going to bring in new and different crowds. But you just don't see that in the musical slate because it's it's just harder to do. Yeah. And they mentioned in the article that changing the marketing for some of these bigger Broadway shows is really key to surviving this upcoming season. Reaching out to those, you know, targeting younger people, people from different backgrounds, classes, cultures, and getting more creative in how they attract those audiences is going to be really crucial for a lot of these musicals. So I will say, having lived in New York for like 16 years, I have never gone to see Phantom of the Opera because it's always just been there, you know. Uh-huh. And I've and and I'm like, oh, someday I'll get I'll get to it. But now I feel like I like a greater sense of urgency. But also just I've just missed live theater and theater. live performances, yeah. and I feel way more apt now to like run out and just see whatever I can. And I know I'm not the only person that feels this way. I was just talking to a good friend of mine, not a dancer. He like grabbed me and was like, we need to make a date for the ballet. He's like, I am never taking the arts for granted again. Like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of people feel that way. So hopefully that attitude will help, I guess. But I feel that way too. 75% of ticket sales is a lot to have. It's so much. I mean, it does sound like so far ticket sales are looking good. That's a good Mm -hmm. sign. Yeah. But yeah, there are just so many variables. It'll be interesting to see how the whole industry adapts and evolves once shows are actually open. I hope Chicago doesn't go. I've seen Chicago five times. Aww. It's my favorite musical. <laughs> I can never get enough of it. I just love the music so much and the and the choreography and the whole. It is know. a solid show. Yeah. And it feels very relevant still. If they could do some creative marketing for that, I can yeah. see that really yeah. helping bring in new audiences, hopefully. Anyway, we shall see. All right, so our next discussion segment today concerns an issue that it might not seem super timely at first glance, but it's actually very timely. Earlier this week, Dance Teacher ran a story by Kathleen McGuire about attendance policies in dance education. So dance schools and college programs are notorious for their strict rules about attendance. A lot of schools have a like show up no matter what policy that's basically in line with that like show must go on mentality we see a lot in professional dance. But that doesn't leave much room for dancers who might be struggling with illness or injury or mental health issues. So and what Kathleen argues is that since the pandemic basically turned that you got to be there model on its head, we should use this moment to reevaluate it and maybe revise it. And Amy, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this as someone who is actively teaching right now. Yeah, I do. It's like, you know, a lot of my friends who were teaching over the pandemic, you know, could really see some of their dancers struggling with this remote learning business. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one reason why they did kind of relax those rules is because, you know, they could tell the kids were just really struggling. Mm -hmm. And there is, you do need some level of commitment to get a show on, especially with students, if they have competing interests like soccer or whatnot, you know, and Mm -hmm. half of, half of them are not in rehearsal or whatnot. It gets, it gets hard to put on a show. But Kathleen made a really great point about um, attendance being a sign of motivation Mm -hmm. um, and to kind of question that, Mm -hmm. um, especially with injury and with more mental health issues. And I know, you know, 
like for myself, when I was a, a trainee, I had my, my grandmother died. And that day I, I approached the artistic staff member and a choreographer and, you know, asking to take a day and a half to attend my grandmother's funeral. And both of them told me I couldn't. Oh my gosh. And I was shocked. I was totally shocked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it was this, yeah, no, it's too important. We're, we're putting on a world premiere and it's, it's more important that you're here for that. Mm, you know, so yeah. I, whatever, I, it, I got around it. I went above this person and I got the time off and I went to my grandmother's funeral. But Good. that always stuck with me that like that notion of like, you know, this rehearsal is more important than your yeah. grandmother dying. And like, I was, you know, in no way unmotivated. It's not like I didn't, I would have much rather been in rehearsal mm-hmm. <laughs> than at a funeral. But um, I do think that teachers, directors, they, you do need to talk to your dancers and, mm-hmm. and evaluate what you're prioritizing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are a couple of really straightforward counter arguments to strict attendance policies that involve mm-hmm. some of the things you're just bringing up, like encouraging dancers to push through illness or injury, pretty much always a bad idea, teaching yeah. students that their essential needs are not as important as their dedication to the art, pretty much always a bad idea. But then after that, you get into a lot of gray area. And yeah, like you're saying, Amy, a lot of it concerns how we think about motivating students. Because that old school idea of like, do it or miss out, do it or be punished. If you implement that, what's the long term effect of that mindset? Like, do students end up disengaging from dance because it becomes an obligation? Like, if their Mm -hmm. motivation is rooted in fear, what if they start their professional career and realize they don't know how to self motivate because they've lost their connection to like the reasons they started dancing in the first place? Mm-hmm. So I actually I liked in the piece, Kathleen talked to Sarah Roth, who's the dance department chair at Indiana University Bloomington. And she said, like you were suggesting, Amy, like, communication is such a huge part of this. Why not see this as an opportunity to work on students communication skills? Like if they have to miss class or rehearsal, how do they communicate that in a professional way? Mm-hmm. If that's a skill that teachers can yeah. help them learn, that'll then help them handle that situation once they are in a professional environment. Like, talk to me about this the way you would talk to your artistic director, mm-hmm. which, like, sustains a, a degree of autonomy while also making sure the students are still showing respect for the work they're doing and their teacher's time. Yeah. It's, it was also interesting, Kathleen's experience being injured and having to watch from the front of class like to me Mm -hmm. like for myself as a dancer like I couldn't bear to be out of the studio and away from my friends and I felt like I would miss out if I wasn't there so I was you know usually always there taking notes in class or trying you know (laughs) um so it's interesting how different dancers really do have different responses to that you know for Kathleen sitting there and watching everyone dance was like very hard while she was, you know, while she couldn't. And I think, you know, dance teachers can be creative in thinking of ways to involve their dancers who might be struggling through an injury, whether that's letting them supplement their training with Pilates or something, or um, asking them to help with the music, or just, you know, help me with my with notes in rehearsal or whatnot, just to kind of make them feel or give them a walk-on part where they don't have to worry about yeah, uh, yeah. Like the the quote unquote best response like varies so much depending on the person. Yeah. So I 
the communication side is so important. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, this is an incredibly complicated issue, but please do go read Kathleen's piece. It's excellent, and it's linked in the show notes. So last up today, we want to discuss a piece that Amy is very familiar with because she edited it, and that is Point Magazine's recent story talking to three new moms who were part of Ballet's pandemic baby boom. We've seen a ton of articles along these lines recently. I mean, that combination of like ballet and babies is just sort of irresistible to to journalists. But I thought this point story, its take on this phenomenon was so much more thoughtful than most of those other stories. Like these dancers were extraordinarily candid about what it's actually like to navigate three huge challenges simultaneously. This is really something that's never Mm -hmm. happened before. Becoming a mother, being a professional dancer, and living through a public health crisis at the same time. And those are all challenges that involve both physical and emotional stressors. They're sort of like hitting you from all sides. Yeah. Uh, the writer, Zoe Phillips, who is um, our new assistant editor at Point Magazine, um, she, Yay, did a really, yeah, she did a really beautiful job with these interviews and capturing, you know, all these the different facets of what pregnancy is like to go through as a dancer. And at a time when most dancers' careers were very s- stressfully put on pause, you know, it's it's interesting because you see how the pandemic in many ways made certain things easier for them mm-hmm. as dancers becoming mothers and in other ways more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Mathilde, you see this. Mathilde first year. Yes, yes. Uh, San Francisco Ballet. But you really see her uh, kind of struggle with like identity, you know, mm-hmm. because in her interview, she talks about um, – how she sort of had a, an eating disorder that she wasn't, she was in denial about. And mm-hmm. her and her husband, who is a chef, you know, were trying to have a baby and um, she was just too underweight and, and it was causing some issues. And then with the pandemic, you know, he wasn't able to work. She's unable to work. She's mm-hmm. unable to, I believe she had a miscarriage. Um Multiple. Multiple miscarriages, yeah. And, you know, there's a line where she said, I couldn't be a dancer and I couldn't be a mother and I had nothing to grab on to, you know. So that was really heartbreaking. But, um, you know, it also forced her to take care of her eating disorder and gave her the time to do that. And it allowed her to relax about her ideas about her body and gain more weight and become – and now she's about to have her first child. So her, her story was really raw and vulnerable i that like knocked me over reading her portion of the story i mean all three dancers had had really thoughtful things to say but mathilde's especially i mean i feel like so many of these ballerina baby boom trend pieces just sort of assert that like oh of course shutdowns like freed ballerinas from their crazy schedules and their crazy body pressure so they Mm -hmm. all got pregnant nobody's looking at them in a leotard like of course and i just i was so tired of that like reductive way of positioning it and this story allowed so much more room to to -hmm. talk about what it actually felt like yeah i think the first person voice was really important in this story it's so important it's important to hear it from their own their own words you know, yeah, and and I thought you know Ingrid Silva of Dance Theater of Harlem. She talked about learning she was pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic and feeling scared and also feeling kind of like she couldn't be completely happy about it because there was so much suffering happening with mm-hmm. with COVID nineteen. And um, you know, there was a quote in there that it actually made me think of the movie Children of Men. 
Remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Where nobody's nobody can have babies anymore and there's one pregnant woman alive on Earth. I don't know why it made me go there, but <laughs> she said, the whole world is dying and I'm pregnant. Yeah. Because I'm trying to grow a new life. The whole world is dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then she also talks about how wonderful it felt to bring her baby to the studio and to be to have her lying next to her and to be doing floor exercises and to experience this together and yeah yeah and then Jordan Tilton had that great section about being in a WhatsApp group of dancer moms from yeah. all over the country and being able to ask them these like hyper specific questions about these hyper specific challenges they're facing and what a comfort that was yeah and she also talks about like the ballet family how you know at yeah. a time when everyone's isolated and they can't travel and her own family is far away. You know, she had her ballet family to support her and throw her a shower and do all of totally. those celebratory things. There's just there's just so much more in this piece than in your typical like ballerina mama story. Yeah. Um, anyway, as is often the case on this podcast, the point of this discussion is really to get you to read this story. So we hope you do. You can find the link in the show notes. All right, that is our episode for the week. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.